so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Miller, a professor in the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University. He's also the author of a recent book entitled The Religion of America's Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism? Today, we talk about religion, politics, social ethics, and the rise of Christian nationalism. Dr. Miller earned his PhD from Georgetown University and holds a master's in public policy from Harvard University. He spent a decade in public service as the director of Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff, an intelligence analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency, and a military intelligence officer in the United States Army. Miller's writing has appeared in places such as Foreign Affairs, The Dispatch, Washington Post, Mere Orthodoxy, Foreign Policy, and other outlets. He's also the author of Just War and Ordered Liberty from Cambridge University Press. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your story and kind of what led you to write a book on Christian political theory? Thanks for the question, Jason, and thanks for having me on the show. Um, Yeah, you know, my story actually uh, is a big part of this book, and I share in the first chapter a bit about where I come from and how I came about uh, to write this, uh, this book. I'm a Christian. Uh, I, I was raised in a, I'd say, a politically and theologically conservative home, and I still remain, I still use those words of, of myself, conservative, although they mean different things to different people now. But around 2016, I felt like I didn't recognize the world anymore. I just felt like the community that I had spent my life with was going down a path I couldn't follow, and I and I didn't quite understand why. So I felt that I needed to take a step back and think really long and hard about who we are as a country, about where this particular movement, uh, the, the Christian right, where does it come from and what does it stand for? Lots of things I agree with. I'm pro-life, pro-family values, but uh, it seems to me that um, there was other things in the movement. The idea of nationalism was there. And, I, and as I said, I just couldn't go down that path. So this book started as a, an effort for me to explain to myself uh, the world in a new way that, that I, it felt unfamiliar to me. 
So obviously, and throughout all your work, you focus on the political order. I know you've done a lot of work on just war theory and just war tradition. This book specifically is kind of focused on a Christian political theory. So can you help orient listeners to what that means? What does it mean that this book is a work of Christian political theory? And what are some of kind of the major turning points in the history of kind of the Christian political witness that have brought us to today? When I say it's a book of Christian political theory, what I mean is uh, this is a book about politics. It's not so much about partisan ups and downs, and it's not horse race politics. It's more about a, re- it's a reflection on the nature of political order. And it's a reflection on the nature of justice and how to keep a polity together when we no longer agree on the nature of justice. So that's what it means when I say it's a work of political theory. For it to be a work of Christian political theory just means I, the author, I'm a Christian, and the way I think of these questions, I can't think about justice unless I think of it in Christian terms. I can't think about the nature of political order, the purpose of sovereignty, the purpose of governments, unless I make reference to the broad Christian tradition of reflection on, on these questions. So how does then, how when we're talking about a lot of these contemporary issues of nationalism, et cetera, how does that fit into kind of the Christian movement? I mean, obviously Christians, this isn't the first time Christians have thought about our political witness or our political engagement or the relationship between the church and the state. What are some of those high points along the way that kind of have led us to this moment or at least set the stage for this moment? Christian political thought has gone through um, a lot of different phases over millennia. For a long time, Christian political thinkers were optimistic about the possibility of a a marriage between uh, sacred and secular authorities, um, a partnership. They always understood they were separate. They talked about the, the two kingdoms or the two swords or the different spheres. But many Christian political theorists for a thousand years and more really thought that there was a lot to be gained by a, a strong partnership between the church and the state. And that's how you got Christendom, this idea that civilization of Europe would be rooted in a Christian public philosophy. There's some real problems with that. It compromised the Christian public witness when uh, the secular authorities used the moral legitimacy of the church to pursue unjust policies, which, spoiler alert, they did all the time, right? It's the, it's the history of governments around the world. They very regularly use and abuse religions as a kind of a cheerleader and a handmaiden to bolster the legitimacy of the state. And Christians allowed themselves to be used and manipulated that way for a very long time. So in the early modern era, there's a, a new idea that we're going to try to keep these things a little bit more separate. And one of the founders of the, of the Baptist denomination, Roger Williams, he made this idea a cornerstone of what it meant to be a Baptist, uh, the idea of, of disestablishment and religious freedom. And he has got this great phrase where he says something like this, that Christendom has swallowed up Christianity. Right? The idea that a Christian culture has actually become the enemy of the true Christian faith. And so that's the tradition I want to stand in that says uh, keeping these things a bit more separate is healthier for the church By the way, it's actually healthier for the state as well. Christian nationalism is the effort to bring them back together again. It's almost an effort to resurrect a kind of American Christendom. And I think that's deeply dangerous. 
Yeah, and see, I, especially when you think of a lot the church's political witness, or you think of our social engagement, or ideas of like public theology, there, that's really there's always the question of the relationship of the church and the state, or what moral order are, should the government be promoting? And I think people draw the line in different places. Even coming from our Baptist tradition, there's a line. There's obviously certain things that we don't want the government promoting, uh, such as the killing of the unborn. Uh, racial issues and drawing the lines on those. So obviously there's always a line in the sand in some sense that we draw. And I know that this kind of, especially the recent conversations surrounding Christian nationalism, obviously draw the line in a much different place than many Baptists are historically comfortable with. And that term Christian nationalism, if anybody's spent any time on social media, especially on Twitter, seems to get thrown out all the time in recent years everything is Christian nationalism or nothing is Christian nationalism, or it's a good use or it's a bad term, or we can adopt this term for good righteous purposes or no, it should be rejected at all costs. So can you help us to understand what is Christian nationalism properly defined? Um, Because I think it's often thrown out to kind of lambash our opponents per se, um, or those whom we disagree with in the public square who are Christians operating kind of on the national level, but can it help us understand what is Christian nationalism per se or by definition, and then how should Christians start to think about it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I started writing this book six years ago, and really nobody was talking about Christian nationalism. That wasn't much of a, a phrase many people used. Right after January 6th, uh, 2021, everyone was talking about Christian nationalism, and my book wasn't out yet. <laughs> so it was very frustrating for me. I really wanted to get the message out there to help inform the debate better. Because you're right, I think there's been some sloppiness in how people use the term. And especially critics, sort of critics on the left, they sometimes use the phrase to mean any Christian involvement in politics, which is just wrong, right? I'm a Christian, I wanna advocate for justice. That's not Christian nationalism. It is not wrong for us to pursue greater justice, peace and flourishing for our neighbors in the public square. And that's not Christian nationalism. I like to draw a distinction between patriotism and nationalism. And and this distinction is not original with me. This is George Orwell and and every scholar of the subject ever since. When somebody asks, what does it mean to be an American? A patriot will answer the creed. A nationalist will answer the culture. That is the most basic distinction I can draw and to help you understand what a nationalist is. The patriotic or civic understanding of American identity is that we're defined by the American creed of freedom and equality for all. And it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter who you are. We're all Americans. We're all equally Americans, whether you come from Europe or Africa or anywhere else. The nationalist says that America originated in the culture of Anglo-Protestantism. And that's not my phrase. Samuel Huntington coined it, I think, in his book, Who Are We, back in 2004. And he said, that is our originating culture, Anglo-Protestantism, and we must remain true to that originating culture to remain who we really are, to remain Americans. And he's not making a racist argument. It's You don't have to be biologically descended from the British. And, and it's not even a theocratic argument either. He's not saying you have to be a Christian. He's saying that America must predominantly be defined by the cultural patterns of Anglo-Protestantism to remain truly American. That's, I think, a really good summary of the nationalist argument is that America is defined by a certain specific, particular cultural inheritance. And the government has a role in keeping, enforcing that cultural inheritance. And if we depart from it, we're no longer truly American. 
One of the things that you do in the book, and I think you do this throughout all of your writing, is that you present a fair argument. Um, obviously, you're not caricaturing this movement. You're not caricaturing these thinkers. Uh, you're entering into the world and having a good intellectual debate and an honest debate about these really important questions. And one of the things I appreciate that you do in your book, and I, I often talk to my students about, is one of the best ways to engage someone else's ideas is to present the case for their ideas. Uh, you have an entire chapter where you talk about the case for Christian nationalism um, as a way to say, this is what this movement believes in order for them to say, yeah, that's exactly what I believe. And then we critique it. We talk about weaknesses. We talk about issues that may spawn from it. So help us make the case for Christian nationalism. What is appealing about it? Why are so many people drawn to this idea of nationalism, specifically Christian nationalism um, in our culture today? Yeah. First of all, thank you for the compliment. I, 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 this, this book took a long time to write in part because I was working very hard to be fair to the idea I was criticizing. And it's, it's very difficult to do. Um, but yeah, you're, yeah I, I spent a whole chapter trying to give the platform to, to those whose ideas I was critiquing and give a fair summation of it. So the best argument in favor of Christian nationalism you know, nationalists uh, believe that uh, humans are divided into dis discrete cultural groups and that we reach our highest fulfillment if our cultural group is free and independent and sovereign. And that means each cultural group needs to have its own government. That's the idea of a nation state, uh, a cultural nation that has its own government. And that's an appealing idea. Like we all love the movie Braveheart, right? Like, you know, let's let's declare independence from the, the terrible British. And there's a feeling that goes with nationalism that is that can be intoxicating. Uh, imagine how it feels to be at a, a sporting event for your favorite team during the championship, and you're you're pulling off an amazing come from behind victory. You, you remember how it feels to be in a stadium with a hundred thousand people, human beings reverberating to the same goal, the same aspiration, the same hope, and, and the cheers surround you. Most people don't enjoy that experience in most of their lives. Sports is kind of it. Nationalism tries to replicate that experience on a national level. And it is, it's a profound feeling. It can feel very ennobling. It can feel inspiring. And this is often what inspires people to serve their country, to, to serve you know, in combat, for example. Um, so that's an argument in favor of nationalism. I think there's lots of things that are kind of dangerous with it, but there's, there's an argument in favor. Maybe one more argument in favor is that nationalists, they're often at the forefront of trying to recover and cultivate our cultural heritage. They can really contribute well to history because they want to uncover the past and cultivate it, appreciate it, hold it up for value and, and esteem. Just to be clear, I don't think you need to be a nationalist to have that esteem for history, but I think nationalists often are good examples of it. So I know you mentioned Samuel Huntington earlier. Who are some other major figures uh, who kind of put forth this idea of Christian nationalism? So um, Yoram Hazoni is an Israeli political theorist who wrote a book back in 2018 called The Virtue of Nationalism. And he uh, wants to argue for all nationalisms. In so doing, he does make an argument about the United States, similar to Huntington's, that the United States is, our cultural nation is characterized by our, our Anglo-Protestant values. Not quite sure if that's the phrase he uses, but he, he gets the same idea. 
So by the way, that kind of shows you that you don't have to be an American or even a Christian to advocate this vision of American identity. I'd also point to Rich Lowry, the editor of National Review. He wrote a book called, I think it's called The Case for Nationalism, if I have that right. And, and he has a whole chapter on our, uh, I think he, the chapter is the, our English forerunners, and then a whole chapter on the biblical inheritance uh, of American identity. And to be clear, I think that it is accurate historically to say that these things were predominantly influential in defining our cultural life. That's absolutely true, and I got no problem with that. The problem is that they want to take that history as, as destiny, that we have to remain true to that as a matter of public policy. We need to use the government's authority and, and, and coercive power to enforce that cultural template into the future. That's where I think I have a problem with it. Yeah. And I know especially I have a, a number of friends who may lean toward this kind of idea or – and some of the appealing nature of it especially is in the midst of kind of the cultural chaos that we're experiencing right now, whether it's the LGBTQ plus movement, various social movements and currents that are going on. There's a real feeling that we're kind of our, – our culture is very decadent. Our culture is losing kind of it, the moral order and the justice uh, really at the core, whether it's from abortion policies to race issues to a host of different issues. And so I know that some of my friends seem to be uh, drawn towards this idea. But as you've rightfully said, there are some major issues with it, some major weaknesses and uh, some dangerous outworking. So critique Christian nationalism for us. Help us to understand why this, while it seems appealing, may actually be a very bad thing for us, and especially the Christian church. Yeah. First, I just want to say I, I share many of those concerns. As I write in the preface to this book, this is an incomplete argument because I had to kind of ignore the progressive left in this book. I'm going to say that for the next book. Um, but I, I share many of the concerns about the cultural chaos that you described. I don't think the solution is nationalism. I think the solution is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the phrase, but then I'm going dis- to define it, so don't freak out when I say the phrase classical liberalism. And I know a lot of listeners may hear the word liberalism and they think I'm talking about the Democratic Party or the political left. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the philosophy of the founders, right? They were classical liberals. They looked to John Locke and John Stuart Mill came after, after them. You know, it's the philosophy of the open society, political rights, civil liberties, checks and balances, civic republicanism with a small r. That's the solution, I think, to these problems. My concern with the post-liberal right, which is what some of these people call themselves, is that they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I share many of their concerns about the cultural chaos, but their, 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 their cure is worse than the disease. They, It seems that they want to impose a kind of an authoritarian right-wing state to enforce public morality. And I, I just wonder what example from history leads you to believe that's possible. You see, that's the danger of the nationalist approach. You, to get to your question, what is the danger? Nationalism is almost always illiberal, or to put it another way, it's almost always authoritarian. It is almost always anti-democratic. Now, there's a gradation, there's a spectrum here of nationalisms. They're not all as bad as Nazi Germany, but they can be. And I think that there's a natural logic to nationalism that leads it to be increasingly intolerant. And here's why. If nationalists believe that there are cultural groups and each deserves their own government, you have to ask yourself, what are the boundaries? How do you actually draw the boundaries around the groups so that they can get their own government? It turns out that cultural boundaries are highly fluid and very blurry. 
And once you try to draw a line on a map and say, this is the borders of our government, you have to force people to choose a side. That's how you get culture war. You are politicizing cultural identities and making people choose a side and advocate to use the government to enforce this or that cultural template. And once one side wins and gets the government, they start excluding or ostracizing the other side. And that can be somewhat benign in democracies or could be outright authoritarian and even genocidal on on the other end of the spectrum. But in any, you know, even for the benign cases, it's still bad. It's still illiberal. It's still treating other people who are different as second-class citizens. And as Christians, uh, we should love our fellow citizens politically and recognize their equality, their full inclusion in our community, even if they're different from us. You asked another question, which is, how is it different? How is it dangerous for Christians specifically? I think Christian nationalism can confuse us on what the gospel actually is. I think many, many Christians may believe that winning symbolic recognition for Christianity in the public square by preserving a cross on public grounds is a really significant advancement for the kingdom. To be clear, I don't oppose a cross on public grounds. I used to live around the corner from the Bladensburg Cross. I got no problem with that. I also don't think it's that important, right? In the grand scheme of things, that is not how we advocate for justice in the public square. It is far more important to advocate for human dignity, for religious freedom, for equal justice for all than it is to to advocate to protect a cross on, on public grounds. That's just not that important in the grand scheme of things. And we Christians can be confused about what our political agenda really ought to be when we follow the Christian nationalist path. So before we get to kind of unpacking classical liberalism, obviously you just kind of espoused some of the major tenets of classical liberalism. But before we get there, I know you were you were in many ways describing this kind of moment that we're in in terms of identity politics. So I, that language gets thrown out a lot, especially in some political theorists, um, especially in kind of Christian political theory, is this idea of identity politics. What is that? What does that mean um, in terms of how we do political engagement in society today? So identity politics, it is when a particular group, usually defined by one shared trait like race, ethnicity, or language, or religion, kind of rallies together to advocate for its own interests. Now. Uh, I have usually, you know, usually identity politics gets a bad rap, you know, in our circles. People think it's it's bad. And I generally share that. However, I, I was really helped when someone pointed out to me that the civil rights movement was kind of a form of identity politics in the sense that it was the African-American community banding together and advocating for its interests. And boy, aren't we glad they did, right? So there's a form of identity politics that can be necessary as a form of self-defense, as a matter of advocating for your your just due, your rights, your survival. That kind of identity politics, no problem with that. Today, there are many forms of identity politics that maybe aren't, they don't follow that mold. Everybody wants to claim the civil rights movement as their, as their, as their mantle, or they're, they're, you know, they're following that uh, model, but not all of us are. And sometimes today, the identity politics seems to be uh, groups advocating for special privilege, for uh, a carve out, for uh, special treatment, and I want to be very fair about this. I think everybody does this. And when I talk about Christian nationalism, I say in the book, I think Christian nationalism is essentially a form of identity politics. And this is going to be really awkward. It's a form of identity politics for white Christians, right? You could say it's for American Christians, but in practice, it's almost always white Christians who follow into this. 
Uh, and I know that right, that opens up a can of worms and a whole lot of other stuff that, oh, we're out of time. Can't talk about that now. <laughs> um, but that is, uh, in practice, what Christian nationalism ends up being many times is a form of identity politics for white American Christians. So then kind of unpack this idea of classical liberalism. Obviously, you advocate for this as an answer to kind of the Christian nationalist movement is a recovery of these kind of classic liberal values. And just, you know, you've already said this, but I'll remind listeners, this doesn't mean politically left or liberal in that sense of progressive. It's these kind of classical values that America was founded on. Um, the, many of the founders, not all, obviously, um, operated from a religious or a faith perspective. Some were Christians. Um, and we talk a lot about, as you mentioned with Roger Williams, but even some of our other Baptist forefathers like John Leland advocated for a rich conception of religious freedom, um, saying that the government, Isaac Bacchus and others to say the government doesn't have the right in that sense, that these are pre-political rights. So can you talk a little bit about the idea of classical liberalism and why that's a better form of government and a better way to organize society? Yeah. If I hesitate here, it's because the ideas will sound so familiar as to be almost cliched and even trite when I say them. Because we're talking about uh, the idea of equal rights for all and checks and balances in the government, uh, the Bill of Rights, uh, separation of powers, separation of church and state, the First Amendment. None of these ideas will be unfamiliar to our listeners. But maybe what will sound unfamiliar or uncomfortable is how they play out when it comes to our particular community's stature and status. I found that sometimes I hear a narrative from, from, our, from our circles of acquaintances. It's a narrative of decline and fall, that America used to be shining city on the hill, but we lost our way circa 1963, and now we're in a moment of cultural chaos. And that's a narrative I, I, I think I believed in very firmly uh, up until recently. It's very helpful for me to reflect that American history looks very different from other perspectives. It's not a straightforward narrative of decline and fall. In some ways, America's gotten drastically, drastically better uh, because of the abolition of slavery, the, the end of uh, official segregation, women gaining the right to vote, and many other things like that have made America better and better. And in fact, you could say truer to Christian values when we love our neighbors politically by giving them true freedom and equality that way. And so America has, in some respects, gotten more Christian, or you, should, you could say more classically liberal, when it lives up truer to its values. Okay, so that does mean that the people who used to be in positions of unchecked privilege don't have as much privilege anymore. Uh, and that's a good thing, but it can feel uncomfortable. That's why uh, living under a regime of truly fair classical liberalism, while we can recognize it is just from the outside, can sometimes feel uncomfortable on the inside if it means we're going to have to give up a little bit of inherited uh, power. Yeah. No, I think that's really helpful. And that's where I, I know a lot of times when we talk about Christian political engagement, there's that real, that question of where do we draw the line in terms of kind of the moral order or what's the public morality. And I think that's where the classical liberal approach, I think is helpful in some senses. You're saying that there's multiple groups. And I think that's something we have to recognize is there are multiple groups with various interests coming into the public square. And this is where I've been really influenced by folks like Richard John Newhouse and the naked public square. Um, in terms of we all bring our presuppositions, we all bring certain 
commitments and albeit even faith commitments, um, religious commitments, um, whether they're theistic or not, we're bringing them into the public square. So this idea that there's this myth that there's this secularized public square that's devoid of these kind of transcendent values is complete. It's not true. It's not the way we've ever existed. And so kind of recovering a lot of that, saying we're coming with competing values, we're coming with different systems, um, systems of belief, and coming into the public square and being honest about these um, and how to navigate some of these. Uh, Newhouse was critiqued pretty heavily for this idea of compromise, and that's kind of a dirty word, especially in our circles. But the way he framed it was you are going to win some but you're also going to lose some. You're not always going to get exactly what you want, but the goal is to pursue justice, is to pursue life, is to kind of get back to some of these, these classic liberal values of life, peace, and prosperity for all. Um, and so that's where I think a lot of this conversation comes to and why I think a lot of people may be drawn towards the idea of Christian nationalism, but not understand some of the ramifications of that. Yeah, and, and I want to affirm everything you just said. I don't believe in a naked public square. And I know that maybe when I talked about separation of church and state and things like that, some listeners might hear a call for a state-enforced secularism. And that is not at all what I mean. Uh, I understand that some, I think on the left, they do want that. And that's not what I want. Um, We have to find the right balance. You know, another good example here about the virtues of classical liberalism, the pro-life movement is about to win and we did it by the rules, right? More or less, you know, um, for 50 years going through the system, winning elections, advocating, lobbying, running for office. These are all things that we did within the system. And it has resulted in many smaller policy victories along the way. And we think, right, we think uh, may actually result in, in a long sought for outcome here soon. So, why would we want to give up on classical liberalism now when it seems that this system, we're able to work within it and we're able to secure some victories in it? Like, that's a really good thing. Somebody has said, democracy is a technology for avoiding civil war. I think that's actually a really profound way of putting it. It's not a technology for achieving the true form of justice for all time. It's never going to do that. But you know what? No political system will, this side of heaven. So since we're going to have to compromise and live with people who disagree with, disagree with us on the nature of justice, this is a particularly decent system for doing that. And while we live within it, we can advocate for some, we can achieve some good and some successes along the way. So then I guess, I think many listeners may be thinking, okay, I understand. I see the kind of the virtues of classical liberalism, this approach to government, civ- kind of civic society. Um, But what do we do in a culture that seems to be jettisoning all kind of just true morality of the good, the true, and the beautiful um, and pursuing these really decadent ends, these very selfish kind of – in many ways we talk about this in terms of expressive individualism, this idea of the autonomy of the self and my rights, my body, my choice. How do then – do Christians, biblically speaking – engage in the public square and uphold these values, these values that transcend culture, that transcend government in terms of the right to life or uh, those times. How do we do that in this kind of current political system without kind of diving into or getting involved in these ideas of a a Christian nationalism or a a state church or something like that? One of the first things I want to say is um, get it out of your heads that there's anything particularly new about this moment. Like Christians living in a paganized culture, surprise, we've been here before, right? That's the story of the, of the early church in Rome. It, it's a weird 
a presumption that it ought to be otherwise, that we have some kind of right to live within a society that predominantly reflects our values. That's, that's an unusual thing in history, right? Okay, so first of all, we've been here before. Stop acting like you're being sort of deprived of your rights when society doesn't automatically affirm all of your values, right? Second thing I'd say is recognize that uh, when other people choose to live wrong, usually doesn't actually hurt you, right? Most people in the world are making choices I disagree with and wouldn't want to make for myself. Life goes on. Uh, we, we have access to so much information. We now know about all the terrible choices people make all around the world thanks to social media and a 24-hour news cycle and all that. So turn off the TV. Log out of social media. You don't need to spend your time weighing yourself down with anxiety over how other people are living wrong. Uh, most of the time, in most of the ways that other people choose to live wrong, it doesn't hurt you that much. It's not any of your business. Okay, so that's that's the second thing I'd say. The third thing I'd say is continue to love your neighbors and love them politically by working and voting for justice in the public square. And don't apologize for being who you are, for being a Christian, believing what you believe. There's a lot of institutions in our culture right now that will try to make you feel ashamed for being a Christian, uh, who mock you for being dumb, who will call you a bigot. So expect that because Jesus promises us persecution. Don't be belligerent about it but confidently, lovingly, and humbly continue to advocate your beliefs. You know, I I go back to the case of advocating for the pro-life cause, advocating for religious freedom. Uh, Those are really important causes. They're not uh, Christian nationalism. Those are three things I'd say, maybe a fourth. And this is really important for understanding where the line is between good Christian political activism and dangerous Christian nationalism. Do your advocacy in community with others who know you well. I think sometimes the difference between the two isn't a difference in policy. It's actually a difference in the attitude with which you advocate for policy. And you're not going to be the best judge of your own heart, which is why you should do this in community with others. If you're advocating for a policy out of a sense of grievance, wounded pride, desire for kind of, you know, a vindication of your your identity or something like that. I think those are probably the wrong motives for political engagement. It ought to be a love for your neighbors, a desire to pursue justice and flourishing for all. Um, And so do it with others who can look at your heart and help you hold up a mirror there and see why you're doing what you're doing. Um, And I think that's, that's actually really important. Yeah, it really is. And one of the things that is we talk about kind of classical liberalism and recovering some of them and retrieving some of the, these ideas for modern society um, is, and we don't have time to dig into this, but is having a really thick conception of religious freedom. Um, I think often that's an idea that's either jettisoned or is something that maybe is not as prevalent in some denominations or in some versions of Christianity and other faiths. But as a Baptist, that you have to hold these liberal values alongside a rich conception of religious freedom. And that helps to kind of draw that line and make it a little bit clearer. Because while sometimes the things that are happening across culture that seem really decadent and really immoral um, may not affect us, at times they do. And so we have the option, we have that idea of religious freedom to be able to live our faith out consistently in all aspects of life. It's not a freedom of worship. It's not just a freedom of private worship that's something just for my family or just for my church, but to be able to bring those values into the public square, to advocate for certain policies that really are grounded in God's created order. 
And I know that where that where you draw that line often comes down to one of the biggest debates in Christian political theory. Um, but I think it's something that's really, really important. And we've had some other resources we'll link to um, for listeners sake on religious freedom and kind of developing that and understanding that. If I could br- briefly uh, comment on a few of those things. Uh, number one, I try to address some of that in chapter five of the book that and I affirm the government should be culturally neutral, but not morally neutral. And how you define that line is very tricky. I try to walk through a number of cases in that chapter. It's very, very hard. So I also want to just remind the listeners that on religious freedom, we have religious freedom in America is more secure today than essentially it ever has been in all of American history. I think some listeners may think that there was these halcyon days in the 19th century when religious freedom was unmolested and and then it got all screwed up after 1947. There was no religious freedom in this country for Catholics in the 19th century. There was very little religious freedom for Mormons in the 19th century. Uh, There was not a a strong cultural acceptance of evangelicals, of Baptists, of Methodists, of Pentecostals, for crying out loud, let alone black Protestants. So there's been a huge amount of progress in the Supreme Court protecting real religious freedom, not religious power for the dominant group, but real religious freedom and equality for all religious believers, including all all Christians. It's more well-established in law today. We went through some rough days in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with some bad court cases, but the court's really undone a lot of that in the last few decades. And so I'm, I'm very optimistic about the state of religious freedom in America today. Yeah. Well, to shift gears a little bit, because obviously you are uh, not only incredibly well-read and also you write all the time. You It seems like you always have a writing project or two that you're working on. You talk early on that this is part of a planned trilogy in your head uh, of a couple books that you want to write kind of following this one. What are those and kind of how are you framing up this project of Christian political theory in your mind? Yeah, um, great place to, to end on. As I say in the preface, you know, this is this is part of volume one of a trilogy. Um, this is the current book is is on the nationalist right. And that was because I felt the need to look at the, the plank in my eye before looking at the speck or the plank in another eye. The next book, we'll look at the, the plank uh, on the other eye. And the next book is about the progressive left. And there's much to say there. And that's a book I've wanted to write a long time, but uh, it, it, it was difficult because I felt the need to do this self-critique first. Um, and then the third book will be um, my own thoughts on the way forward, a kind of a vindication and defense of a sort of a Christian democracy or something like that. And Jason, I'm happy to share and announce that this trilogy is really going to happen. Um, InterVarsity has offered me the contract to write the next two books. So in the preface to this book, it actually says, it, it sketches the trilogy as a hypothetical. But after I wrote it, uh, the publisher liked this book so much, they said, go ahead, go ahead and write them. So um, they're coming out in 2026 <laughs> and 2029, um, Lord willing, and, and who knows if those deadlines will actually hold. But uh, that is the notional idea right now. I'm just really excited to get to work on that and really complete this larger project that I, I felt called to. And I'd appreciate, by the way, your prayers and your wisdom, uh, you and all the listeners as I embark upon that. Well, we're really excited about that. Look forward to it, even though it feels like it's going to be forever away. Um, it'll, in some ways, be here before we know it. Um, the way we always end the podcast is talking about other resources. So obviously, you have a number of planned resources coming. You have this really helpful book kind of critiquing this idea of Christian nationalism. Um, but what are some other books that you might recommend or resources that you'd recommend for listeners if they want to dig a little bit deeper, maybe into political theory or maybe into the idea of Christian nationalism? Are there some essays or some articles or books that you would recommend people to pick up to dig a little bit deeper? 
Yeah. So um, if you're if you want to read the best case in favor of it, I mentioned the book by Yoram Hazoni. Uh, I think that's probably the strongest case for Christian nationalism. There's actually a really, really fantastic book by Nigel Bigger, B-I-G-G-A-R, called Between Kin and Cosmopolis. And I agreed with like 94% of that book. And then he says, we should also establish our churches. I'm like, no, no, you can't do that. Um, but I, I reference Bigger quite a lot in, in my own book. I think it's a really fantastic work. So if you want to read the books against it, of course, there's mine. Um, then there's a book called Taking, I think it's called Taking the Nation Back for God uh, by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel, Samuel Perry, a pair of sociologists who've done a lot of uh, polling data and statistical work uh, that looks at a similar phenomenon from a slightly different angle. And then maybe some uh, uh, of the classic works of Christian political theory. You know, Jonathan Lehman has written a lot of stuff of Christian political theory. And I think his most accessible work is uh, Why the Nations Rage. And if you have, if if you listeners have the uh, the stomach for it, the larger academic version is a Political Church, which is truly a fantastic work. It's just an astonishing work. So I recommend that if you have time for 500 pages on it. So that 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 would be another one I recommend. The stuff by David Van Drunen I think would be good. Uh, he's had a number of works, Politics After Christendom, The Two Kingdoms. That could be quite good stuff. There's probably more, but uh, the recommended resources in my book can help as well. Yeah. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about your book is that you end with that kind of a whole section on recommended resources. And for listener's sake, we'll make sure to link to all of those books that you referenced in the show notes so you can grab that. Um, but Dr. Miller, I really appreciate, I appreciate your work, the thoughtfulness and the care that you take in your writing and in your work and in your advocacy on these issues. And I appreciate you taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. From all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, connect with Dr. Miller and learn more about his work as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in our public square, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.